Welcome to the Path to Partnership podcast. Hear from partners of global, national, and boutique firms as they share their journey of becoming a partner. I'm your host, Steve Cole, and this series is brought to you by Signature Consulting. So welcome to the second episode of the Path to Partnership podcast, a podcast where I, Steve Cole, get to interview partners and directors of professional services firms about their individual journey to becoming a partner and what it takes to get there, but also how to build and sustain a successful practice. Today, my guest is Jim Softus, Managing Partner and Head of Specialist Advisory for Findex, Australia's fifth largest accounting advisory firm. Welcome, Jim, and thank you for agreeing to do this podcast. Good morning, Steve. Thank you for having me. No problem. I've I've been looking forward to it all week. Me too. Me too. (laughs) Um, As always, I'll begin at the beginning. Um, Why accounting? What got you into it? Look, I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and thinks I'm going to be an accountant forever. But in the end, you know, going through high school and even even primary school, you don't really have a, a fixed idea as to what you know, what your life is going to entail or what your career is going to entail. Um, But for me, you know, getting into university was a good first step, understanding, you know, what what accounting could do for you in life Um, and then being able to, I guess, explore the opportunities around accounting and being able to, you know, help people, advise people and just be there as a, just as a, as a supporting uh, person in in life and in business, I think is, is really good. And I guess for, for me, whilst uh, accounting might have a, a particular stereotype out there um, that we've been counters and then we're all pretty boring folk. Um, I like to have a good time with it. So in the end, for me, it it turned out pretty well. I kind of got into a commerce degree by default because I wanted to initially do law, um, but ended up in a commerce degree. Didn't really worry about the transition into law, just thought it's too hard, too many years. Uh, actually enjoyed the analysis, the numbers, the theory behind accounting, and I could really see a, a career in it. Had some, you know, really good friends that I I kind of went through uni with, um, and then was lucky enough to, I guess, get my first uh, job while I was still at uni, yeah. um, which I was able to then kind of match out um, some of the theory based learning that I had um, against some, you know, some really kind of hardcore client work, and that kind of embedded it for me from that point. So early on, I could see that there was some some really good kind of tangible benefits from a. I I guess a career in accounting. So in 1999, you were still at uni and yes. you joined Rothsay. I did. Excellent. I did. So, I joined, I think it was in either July or August 99. It was my final year of uni. And why Rothsay at that point? Had you met with other firms? Had you purposely looked at a smaller boutique style firm? Very good question. Look, I think as as with all uh, kind of penultimate year graduates, I joined all of the the recruitment programs in that year, um, and it's fair to say I was a pretty I was a pretty shy person back then. Uh, I kind of kept to myself. Had a very busy um, busy life when I was 18, 19, um, you know, saw the world in a different light, did a bit of traveling university was a bit kind of second, third fiddle. Um, but I was also quite focused on, on, on the uni life, mm. um, and just made sure that I got through, did what I needed to do, but didn't overly, um, I guess didn't overly invest, um, at uni, just kind of, kind of got through. Um, and then look, I think as part of that, kind of global graduate recruitment that the bigger firms do, some of the mid-tier firms do. It didn't quite work for me at that point because I think at that time, 
you know, a lot of the a lot of the interview processes were, uh, I guess, group based or team based. So unless you stood out, even though you might have had the the underlying skill set or the theory behind you, you did need to, I guess, stand out to be noticed. Um, so the bigger firms and the way they recruited at that time just didn't really suit me. And then thankfully, you know, coming into mid year and towards the end of that kind of final year of uni, through a, a connection of mine, I was introduced to to the guys at Rothsay. Yeah. They, they were running a you know a very good, you know, strongly focused kind of boutique practice with some very very strong clients, uh, both domestic and international clients. And you know they were happy to take me on on a initially one day per week. I think it was every Wednesday. <laughs> um, and I, to be honest, at that point, I'd be happy to just go in and just get some experience. They were happy to pay me as well, which is great. Um, and then that kind of saw me out for that last six months uh, of my uni, I guess my undergraduate university. Um, and then once that all finished up, literally November, uni was finished. December, I started working full time. Um, and look, I think. That was a good way for me, and that's been a good way of, I guess, providing advice to to other people coming through the ranks in the sense that, and even now when I'm recruiting for graduates at Findex, uh, we tend to recruit graduates later on in the year because I find that in the beginning of the year, everybody's just running around looking for the same opportunities, um, whereby I find that the the better candidates, certainly for us, tend to come through kind of post-June, July, where everything's just settling down, people are taking stock, they're getting towards the end of their uni career, they haven't really rushed with a big firm. They've obviously identified that that's not for them. Yeah. And they then say, okay, I'm, I'm prepared to go out now. And generally, we're pretty good at that time. And we usually pick up people between, say, July and September, which was the case again this year. You were with Rossay till 2005, so good sort of six years yes. and five years full time. What did working for a small firm boutique give you in that five years that you've taken to your, to what you are now in terms of your career and yeah, look, I think Rothsay, again, it was it was very well positioned for where I was at that time. Um, and in the end, I was able to to gain very, very strong experience very early in yeah. my career. And then what also happened during that time was, I was fortunate enough to then be sponsored by Rothsay into a postgraduate qualification as well, which again re-emphasised, you know, how much I really loved the work. Um, but yeah, a twenty-something or twenty-one-year-old, um, you know, young person in a boutique environment being thrown into all sorts of different projects, all sorts of different work, um, as opposed to being you know, overly specialised in those early years, I think is really important. And there were times where we were taking on very, very large new clients and I would be seconded out for you know months on end trying to get you know things up to date for these particular clients and I was essentially working on my own um, obviously supervised but being being given the autonomy and the authority to go out there and present the firm and do the work and I was only like I was still doing my CA yeah. um, so and that kind of got you to the point where you weren't just doing work and delivering work up for somebody else to look at it and check it, like you needed to make sure it was right. So there were times where I'd work with internal finance and we'd be preparing you know, bank reporting um, and it would be me 
and him or her at that time, and we would need to stand behind that, right? So um, that's pretty good experience for somebody who's, you know, maybe 20 or 21. Um, but for me, I kind of backed myself at that time and thought, no, no, I, I know what I'm doing here, and if I need to ask questions, I will. But it was a, a commensurate level of autonomy, uh, respect for what somebody knew, and then ultimately you just need to back yourself, I think, even in those early days. Yeah. Uh, because ultimately that's what, I guess employers are looking for later down the line to be able to, you know, delegate responsibility and look at how how to best service uh, clients and clients' businesses. And you can't necessarily always rely on senior people. That's and, a key. And so you obviously had really good experience at Rothsay. You got exposure to a lot of work, client contact, managing clients' expectations and relationships really yep. early on. What made you look at the market and go? arguably upstream to a firm like Grant Thornton yep. in 2005. Yeah, look, I think with a, with that in mind, and obviously I'd been with Rothsay for almost six years at that time, and, you know, we were talking about potential uh, potential partnership roles at Rothsay as well, and I did become a, a salary partner um, before I left. And I guess I, I took stock, and what usually happens for me and for a lot of people that I've met you know, over the years is life-changing events tend to lead to big decisions. Okay. So I got married in October 2004 and, you know, around that time and then, you know, the time after that, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what is the next stage in my career? Do I, do I stick it out at Rothsay? Do I further invest in the partnership? Do I back myself and keep going? And that's where I thought, well, what, what else is out there in the big bad world? And I didn't really get too aggressive with looking for, you know, opportunities and seeing what was out there. I kind of teased it out a little bit. And in the end, it came down to some relationships I had and some people that put some opportunities forward. Um, and in the end, when I met with the team at Grant Thornton, I really, I really felt a deep connection with them, even even early on. So from yeah. the first time I met with uh, the representatives from Grant Thornton, I thought, you know, this seems like a you know a pretty evolving place, quite entrepreneurial. They seem to have the right level of clientele for me in order to then really surpass my current kind of skill level. And there were people there that I thought. I could then learn even more from. Yeah. And I think on reflecting on my my time at Rothsay, I still have some very valuable life lessons and career lessons from my time uh, by, you know, observing the behaviors of the partners, observing the behaviors of, you know, how teams would work in a very tight-knit group. Because yeah. there were only you know, at the peak, there would have only been 20 or 25 of us there. So everybody knew everybody, you know, we all cared for each other as a, as a family group. So if, if somebody was away, we'd cover them and just make sure work got done. And then from a Grant Thornton perspective, I thought, you know, what else is out there? Who are the other practitioners in the market that are really setting a higher standard in terms of not necessarily the day-to-day -day work, but, you know, where they were getting involved, where they were taking the advisory and consulting skill set. Yeah. And where were they, you know, where were they pitching themselves to? Um, and I really felt like when I turned up to those kind of series of interviews, it wasn't really about the money for me at that point. It was more about, okay, for the next, call it six years, because I was used to, you know, long tenures, I thought, yeah. okay, what does the next six-year period look like and what am I going to learn from that? 
And then again, when I reflect on my time there, I've got some really valuable, you know, lessons, connections, relationships. And I left Grant Thornton 10 years ago. Yeah. So I still hold that, you know, very close as well in terms of, you know, I joined as a as a manager there and, you know, realizing that I'd take a, you know, a structural step back, but equally it was a much larger organization. It it taught me how to deal with conflict situations in larger firms. It allows you to cut through some of the politics in larger firms as well, because like it or not, in a larger firm, there's always firm politics, especially when you're a senior person and you need to know how to navigate that. Yeah. And as you become more and more senior, people just start, not because not because they want to, but it's, it, because it's their role. Everybody, you feel like you're being attacked. Yeah. So- you know, you feel like somebody from credit is attacking you or somebody from um, HR is attacking because you haven't done something, right? So you haven't filled out a form or you haven't you haven't completed an administrative task and everyone you feel like everyone's attacking you, right? And I think some people, and my advice to, to new partners that I've brought through the ranks, particularly at Findex, is you just can't let that get to you. So things are going to happen. Things are going to go wrong. It always does. And it's a matter of just focusing on what you're there to do. And in the end, if you look at it with a kind of positive lens, all of that stuff is just ancillary to your day-to-day. But if you let it get to you, I've seen it get to a lot of people and they really suffer with it. And so back then, was brand important to you? It it kind of wasn't, it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, but I did recognise that Grant Thornton did have a very strong b- brand, not only domestically, but internationally. So it demonstrated to me how firms were investing in the brand. And I recall during the time that I was there, there was a brand refresh and just looking at and understanding how much time goes into that, even for something that seems quite trivial, it actually does take a lot of time. And I remember back then, the you know, the color changed. The purple. The purple <laughs> from the blue. Yeah. And I think the words became closer together. And that, I remember sitting through a presentation that took us through some of the thinking behind it. I thought, gee, there's a lot more to it than just changing the color, yeah, yeah. right? Or changing the font. Um, because it actually has a bit more of a deep set deep set meaning behind it as well. And then even when you fast forward to to Findex, we've gone through um, yeah, a of series of rebrands as well, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you joined as manager um, and, you know, considering you were salary partner at Rothsay, I think that probably quite a – it takes an element of self-awareness to make that decision to go, okay, well, I'm going to take a step back from a structural perspective, as you said, and and, and join at the manager level because those are the benefits to joining a bigger a bigger organisation. Take me through that five years with GT. When did that path to partnership journey for you start at GT? And and in your mind, but also in Grant Thornton's yes sort of mind. Yeah, look, I think with Grant Thornton, we had a very very strong, or I had a very very strong start there. You know, between. 2005 and then you know up until 2008 very very good business um very strong clients very very good team we were running you know within the private advisory team you know we were having somewhere between you know 100 120 people a very good suite of managers strong partners very good clients and and back then this is all pre-gfc time um clients would re-engage out of scope plenty of work what's next yep let's do that let's roll with it and i think i saw myself together with quite a few of the other managers in the group because what was different to Grant Thornton was that there was a lot of autonomy in the manager group. 
um, when I joined. So we were responsible for team productivity, for collections, for management, for um, for our reporting to budget. Yes, the partners were involved as well, but there was a lot of responsibility placed on. We were a group of, I think, eight or nine managers when I joined. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. So we're not only looking after the the people aspects, but we're actually dead set responsible for delivery of financial results and outcomes, and also for development of new business initiatives too. So even when you look at it from a structural perspective, being a manager, we were operating out of our skin back then. So, and you could really see those that were into it and those that weren't, and those that were into it just kept going. So then when you talk about progression, come 2008, I recall we had we closed off another very good year and I went overseas for like nine weeks. It was crazy. And at that time, I was promoted to associate director. We'd gone through the pathway, the presentations, the documents, the interviews, the sponsoring. It was a very, very good process. And I remember when I got back, the GFC hit. And I wanted to talk to everybody about my holiday and nobody wanted to talk to me. So the first day I got back, I was like, okay, oh, how are you? What's going on? And I was, you know, I don't really tan that naturally, but I actually had a bit of a glow and nobody wanted to talk to me. Everybody had their head in their hands. And I thought, what's going on here? And I'd come back from Greece and the Greeks don't worry about financial crisis at the best of times. No. Um, but I thought, what's what's gone on? And then within... Two or three months, there were the redundancies, the restructures. Um, all of a sudden, you know, the pathways are looking different from a perception point of view. Does the timing still, you know, is the timing still going to be there? Are things changing? Like it was a, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a journey for us as well as you know every other business in the market. But it was quite important to work through at the time, I think, yeah. because obviously for me, you could quite easily become quite pessimistic and negative about, well, I've been, I've just been promoted. The GFC's hit. People are being pushed out the door because, you know, there's, um, you know, there's a, there's a structural review when there are certain people that, you know, are excess, yeah. which is unfortunate, right? For those people, of course. Um, and then you think, okay, what does this mean for my timeline? Am I still going to get there in two years? Am I still going to get there the following year? What does that mean for me in the market? chasing new business as an associate when businesses are not engaging. So businesses are just wanting the bare bones of, of what they need. And I think the lessons that I learned at that time was just making sure that you were just over communicating. And we're kind of doing that now. Like we've been doing that in the last six months since some of the inflationary pressures, et cetera, over communicating, making sure that the clients understand what they're getting understanding what their expectations are of us. But from a pathway perspective, I thought, okay, this is just thrown it into turmoil. Well, what does this mean? Right? So um, it wasn't a very, it wasn't very clear at that yeah, time, okay. put it that way. So, so during that period, were you, and were you in that path to partnership structure? Was, yes. Did you see, was there a time frame that was put to you that in two years, three years, whatever. Yeah, look, I think there there ultimately was, um, and I think it was always a a two to three year yeah. proposition. But I think what what ended up happening was post post that period, 
you know, we lost a couple of key people, some key partners. We kind of reconcentrated our group. And there was a lot of responsibility placed on the associates as well to deliver business and to keep everybody happy and humming within the team. Yeah. And we got to the point where it was, I think it was June, yeah, June 2011 or in the in the preceding months to June 2011, where I certainly felt like I had the the fee carry or the fee load. I had the respect of the team. I knew enough people within the business. It seemed to stack up from an analytical point of view yep. and also a behavioral point of view as well. Uh, but I think overall, the business hadn't really recovered from that time. Um, and it was still very much in that kind of trailblazing uh, post-GFC time. There was a lot of, you know, re restructuring work, insolvency work, and there wasn't much happening from an advisory yeah. and consulting perspective. Yeah. So when I talked about, you know, joining a team of say 100 or 120, you know, when I was having these discussions, we were a team of say 30. Yeah, wow. So it really wound down, yeah. but I could really see myself as a, as a core person within that within that particular yeah. business. And I was happy to be patient. Um, and in the end, I understood what was going on more broadly because it's it's not just about you all the time. So we need to be, I guess as professionals, need to be mindful of, you know, getting out of your own box and not necessarily understanding what else may be happening within a, a broader business, particularly when it's not yours. Um, you need to be mindful of some of the other external factors that are that are currently going on too. So it's not whilst it might seem to be, it's not always about you sometimes. And that's really hard, right? I mean, I, you that's know, terribly hard because when people are on that partnership track and then fixated on it, yeah, and 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 they've and, and like you at that time, they felt that they've got the, the 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 fees in place, they've got the behavioural tick from the other partners, um, and then it comes to the. The, the the decision yes. or the time at the end of being a, an associate partner and it you're told no or not right now or, or not yet not, not yet. yet not yet um then that's tough it is of course it is of course it is um and then it's a matter of how you deal with that behavior yeah. right but coming back to life changing events right so then fast forward to august 2011 um my wife gave birth to our daughter yep. And then again, you have a lot of time to reflect. So you have a little bit of time away from work. You refocus, you reprioritize kind of what's important. And it's funny because when I applied for the role at Crow, because Findex obviously acquired Crow some years down the track, it was, it was the most fascinating set of circumstances because I was home, I think it was for a whole week, because I'd, I'd thrown my back out because of the constant, you know, picking up my daughter and putting her back in the cot, yeah. and then and then obviously I wasn't I wasn't doing Pilates or whatever I wasn't doing back then, um, but I'd obviously just thrown my back out. So I was obviously very very conscious of making sure she was okay, yeah. and I wasn't doing the right thing, and I wasn't bending my knees and all that stuff, right? So I was home for a week, and it was like two thirty in the morning. And my wife was up, babies crying, standard stuff. You yeah, know that, right? Absolutely. And I was just playing around. I was on seek. And I said to my wife, what do you reckon about this? And she kind of read it half asleep. It's like, yeah, that sounds like you. I go, what, what would be the harm in just applying for it? I, 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 I almost didn't. And I don't even think I had a, 
a, a fully completed CV. It was kind of half done, but yeah, I thought, right. what have I got to lose, right? Yeah. No one's gonna, no one's gonna call me. Like, yeah. They're going to probably see the time of submission. I think this person's a lunatic, right? <laughs> so in the end, I submitted it and sure as eggs by, it was 7.30 in the morning, I had three voicemails yeah, wow. from whoever, was, from the person that was yeah. recruiting. I thought, okay, either there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a misdial or maybe I could be the right person. And again, during that process, I actually took a lot longer to make that assessment and I did a lot more due diligence. I did a lot more kind of stress testing around the opportunity because I did I did value my time at Grant Thornton yes. and I did like the brand and where the brand was going and I'd met so many people, not only from Sydney but nationally because Grant Thornton used to run the best kind of manager conferences or pre, pre-GFC, of course. Yeah, right. um, so you'd met loads and loads of people. So, so the thought of having to do that again is quite challenging, yeah. right? Um, but, you know, I worked through that process, met some very good people, and I remember the initial conversations I had at Crow, I was very impressed. And at that time, they were undertaking a strategy of, you know, bringing in quite a number of partners from the big four firms. Yeah. They were happy to look at partners from the mid-tier firms. Obviously, I wasn't a partner yet, so but I was applying for a partner role. So I needed to convince the target that I had what it took at that time because ultimately I wasn't structurally working as a partner yet. Um, And when I looked at some of the others that were being recruited at the time, there were some fairly senior people coming in from, you know, PwC, EY, you know, 20, 30 years of experience. But I looked at it and thought, gee, if I can get in here as as a young fellow and I can work with these guys, and these guys are new and they're hungry, this could actually be quite a good scenario for me. Um, And in the end, that's kind of how it worked out. It took a good four or five months to work through that process. So between August, I ended up starting in January. So it was a very, very long process. And in the end, it made sense to me at the time. I joined clean at the beginning of a new year. And then structurally, there were some changes at Crow in the first six months, which just threw a few things out the, out the window. Um, and then again, it was a matter of just staying true to oneself and saying, well, I came here to do this. I've got these areas of expertise. This is my approach to the market. I can bring these relationships, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just going to stay patient and just work it through. Because a lot of the time I feel like, and a lot of partnerships and again this might be my perception so taking it in jest but I think there there, there need there needs to be some degree of um, you know decision making around new partners and giving people some time yeah. because ultimately there are no quick wins you can't you can't expect somebody to turn unless they're I don't know unless somebody's already a superstar, particularly if they're not a partner already and they've joined a new organization as a partner, it's their first partnership role, it's quite challenging. So that's why coming back to those comments around being able to understand firm politics, administration, new business, people, very, very important because if you don't have those, you're cooked basically. Um, even, even, Even for somebody who's technically there, if you want to make a real contribution, you need those those broader skill sets in play. Um, but yeah, certainly for me, um, my, my feedback to even when we're looking at, you know, new partners now, we need to give people an appropriate amount of time or runway. Obviously, there's a bit of give or take, 
but we need to give people a you know a decent amount of time to to, to show us what they can do um, and to really prove out some of that business case discussion that goes on you know and and take me through that first 12 months because obviously you've been going through a recruitment process you've probably um done a business case document and you've talked through potential relationships you can bring across and you've set this expectation as to what you can bring to the firm and and so take me through that 12 months for you what did you do to achieve or overachieve on what you said you were going to do that's a tough question because the the first the first 12 months were very very hard yeah the first six months were extremely hard and why we had uh, so so in essence the the group of people that hired me, they left. Yeah, okay. So all of a sudden you have new leadership. Yeah. And I'm thinking, gee, I was the last in. Am I the last out? So yep. all I did was I just held on. <laughs> and I made sure that I, you know, really developed strong relationships with new leadership at that time, even though I wasn't necessarily trailblazing. I was showing some degree of authenticity and value towards the organization. And in the end, that's been repaid, you know, via you know, via various kind of machinations of structure over the time, right? But um, but as long as you then go back to business case, go back to strategy and say, no, no, I can actually like I know what I'm doing, but for the noise, I know what I'm doing. And all I need to do is just keep at it, right? But you need to put yourself out there. So I had way too much caffeine, too many meetings, um, too many after hours beverages, because you need to get out there and tell people what you're up to, uh, be they potential referrers, people in your network, just cold networking as well via LinkedIn and other things. Very, very difficult to do. But I remember thinking in some circumstances, you know, wh- why am I here talking to this person? Like, why? And then you have to just take a couple of steps back because there's a reason for it, but it's not going to it's not going to generate an immediate opportunity for you. You've got to be patient. Um, and then, thankfully, over that first twelve month period, the back end was better. Yeah. So the first half was hard. The second half was better because you'd made those investments, and then you, you'd started to see some referral, not only from external referrers, but even internally, where other partners would see what you were about, and they'd say, "Well, okay, that might be a good opportunity for Jim." Yeah. And then it was up to you to then prove that you were good at what you were doing, how you'd add value, and then you'd get the next one. And I was talking about, you know, those other, you know, very senior partners that also joined around the same time as me. We became very close because we used to go on the hustle together. Yeah. So they'd find something, I'd find something. They'd refer, I'd refer, and then it would go vice versa. Because the pre-existing partners who were on, you know, very large books, unless something came across their their desk, they were busy. So it was all the, and, and to be fair, we were about maybe even a dozen new partners, maybe 10 to 12 partners, new partners. So everyone was on the hustle all the time. Um, and the amount of the amount of um, lunches that we had together with new prospects, it would have been just a, a daily or every two days, constant. Um, so I had a good back half, closed out a reasonably good first, first year after that. And from that point, steady as she goes, it was, look, it wasn't easy, but, you know, we got to the first marker and the second marker and the third marker. And, you know, from a, I guess from a relationship point of view, I had, you know, some relationships that 
you know, we had for three or four years. We all understood what we were doing, and we were running a you know a very a very good kind of relationship business. Um, financially, it was a bit challenging because yeah. at the time, you know, Crow was listed. Um, the model, in my personal view, didn't necessarily cater towards a a collegiate model where everybody was kind of into it. Um, and then obviously Crow was a, I guess, an aggregation of a number of firms at the time. So there was a little bit of disparity in terms of, okay, what we were doing in Sydney versus what was going on elsewhere. So um, that was a little bit challenging because you felt like you were part of a larger organization, but you didn't necessarily kind of intermingle like that. It was very much a, I guess, a silo type business. So we were Sydney and then we wouldn't necessarily know what was happening in Melbourne and et cetera, et cetera. Um, But all you can then do is just focus on what you can control, I guess. And if you can block out the noise, I mean, for for a lot of people, I'd say eight out of 10 people would have left in that first six months because it just would have been too hard. Because everybody that you met or most of the people that you met during that um, interview process were gone. And why didn't you? Did you see the opportunity? Did you see that as an opportunity? You got you I know, did. a load of people. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So new people. Yeah, no one's no one's got the baggage. There's some new. There's some. There's new leadership. Okay, let's learn from them. So the the worst thing that you can do is just close off because in the end, particularly as a as a new person or a new partner or anyone who's new in a role, you have to say to yourself, okay, what can I learn from Steve? What can I learn from Person X? What have they got to? What can they? What can I learn from them? What can they learn from me? Right, because ultimately you've got things to share as well. But if you're if you're very close-minded, and you look at it in a pessimistic way, and you think, okay, what am I going to learn from them? I better leave. Where are you going to go? And if you leave quickly, then the messaging that you're providing is is that you give up as well. So if you leave within six months, yes, there's there's been change, but you kind of have to just stick it out as well. Otherwise, you just you come across someone who panics and what are you going to do the next time? Like, what if you join somewhere else and something happens, you're going to leave again? So all that time that was spent investing in a process is wasted after six months. So I said to myself, no, just hang on at least for the first year or year or two and just see what see what evolves. And I think like one of the most important things about becoming a partner and being a new partner is mentors around you. Mm. Obviously, that probably felt a bit difficult. Terrible with 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 Very them all hard. leaving. Yeah. So how did you how did you navigate that? Did was there pe- there were obviously people in the business that you thought that you could learn from? Yes, correct. Did you have any external? I, I didn't people? really. To no, be, okay. I, I mean, I, I have a lot of people in my external network, yes. um, but no one really that. I'd kind of go and seek if I was in distress. Um, I generally just find people that I can see have got the experience, they're willing to listen, and not everybody's like that. So to be fair, you know, I was quite lucky to have some very seasoned practitioners who had, you know, had worked in the mid-tier, in the big four, in boutiques, and they were now with Crow, and I thought, no, no, I can learn something here, and I can actually have a discussion kind of off the record about what's going on. Now, whether or not I took all of their advice or half of their advice or 0.1% of their advice, at least I took something away from that discussion. Um, And then when I look at what then happened kind of after that, because I actually withstood that for the first three years at Crow, um, and then obviously um, Findex showed some interest. And that was a very 
interesting time for the business because, and I've mentioned this to as many people as are happy to listen to it at Findex, in the, and, it, and I'm not just speaking for myself, but I think at that time, but for the interest shown from Findex, I think a lot of people were disgruntled with the Crow yeah. structure and Findex kind of offered something a little bit different. It wasn't for everybody because we did see quite a number of people leave the business post-acquisition in that 18, 24-month period. But I could I saw it a little bit differently. I saw it as, as something that I could effectively work with. There was a... There was a, a genuineness about the messaging yep. coming down the line from the the C-suite and some of the executive, and the story was consistent. Like it wasn't it wasn't changing to suit the audience. It was very genuine, honest, and you either took it for what it was, digested it, accepted it, moved on, or challenged it and decided to leave. So obviously there were two camps, um, and you know, but for that discussion and that time, I probably would have left Crow because the way that the business worked in a listed environment was quite tricky. Um, kudos to those who can make it work, um, but there was a lack of transparency in how things were being reported. You know, individuals were doing quite well, but then, but then you know, bonuses were not getting paid. So it's a bit tricky, right? Whereas, you know, you could see, old, and Findex, was largely a wealth business yes. when they acquired Crow, um, or when we acquired Crow rather. Um, but you could see the underlying intent of the strategy, whereby even though there wasn't a pre-existing or at least a pre-existing material accounting business within Findex, you could see that everybody that was involved in the transaction understood what it meant and understood the different service offerings and got made the time to understand what everybody did and what value they brought so it wasn't it wasn't as though you know we're coming in we're doing this take it or leave it it was it was very collaborative and in the end certainly for me personally it's worked out because it's allowed me to explore avenues of even further leadership, not even just as a partner, but as a managing partner and managing other partners and managing other people, being responsible for an office, um, taking charge of some of the growth um, enablers within the business as well. So you're not then just looking at yourself, you're then looking at yourself as far as how you can make a contribution to a broader business, which is then valued and supported and respected. So that's a very big change where ultimately someone who's a partner is looking at, okay, we've got, this is my budget. I've got so many people I've got to deliver. It's much bigger than that because ultimately if everybody does that in their own box and doesn't contribute in a collaborative sense, then what do you really have in the end? You've got a whole, you've got a hundred sole practitioners working under one roof. What's the point of that? And and also you're not just about, it's not just about convincing yourself to stay in that environment. It's you've everybody. Got, it's, it's everyone in your Correct. team Correct. that you're leading. Correct. So in the end you become, you then become a, a mentor to others yes. to the extent they want it, but you're almost not necessarily thrust into leadership, but what happened with me was we were in a position where th th there was no clear leadership for our for our team. Yeah. And even just through observation, the, the executive at the time said, well, you're doing it, so let's appoint you and give you some 
give you something to kind of back you up. So at least you've got the title, right? Now, I wasn't necessarily asking for it at the time. It was more a case of, well, somebody needs to take control here. Or not even control. Somebody needs to take the initiative to bring people together. And I think ultimately you've got two two streams of, you know, senior people in business. You've got people that bring people together. Yeah or you have people that tend to stick to themselves and neither one is right or wrong, but it's a matter of, I think as a, as a future partner, it's a matter of identifying who you are. So are you a partner technician or are you a partner who's focused on people and focused on growing relationships, be they internal or external? So I think, you, yes, you can have both, but you won't be that good at it yeah. in my view. Now, you mentioned your first one to three years at Findex or Crow, mm -hmm. I should say, um, in terms of business development and in terms of having lots of meetings lots. and lots of drinks and lots of face-to-face um, uh, -face meetings yes. with people. Yes. Um, ha tell me about that. Do you have... Is there a formula that works for you in that regard? Is and and how has that changed over the years? Now you've you know been a partner for the amount of time that you have yep. and built the 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 business and fee base that you have. Is there a, a formula that you could you would talk to new partners or potential new partners about and and what works and what doesn't? Very good question. Uh, I, I don't I don't think there's a there's a specific formula, but coming back to some of the early interactions where, you know, any referral, any introduction, any opportunity, take it seriously. Yeah, okay. Even though it might be something that appears small or I just can't be bothered with that or what is this? You know, you might charge somebody two grand. Do it well. Yeah. The next one might be 10. The next one might be 50, right? But just do even the smaller bodies of work, do them well. And then- acknowledge and respect any form of referral relationship, respect uh, client relationships, client's always right. So even though you might feel like you're being shortchanged, client always right. Never argue. So what ends up happening is you end up, and I got, a, I got an email just this morning where I followed up a prospect client and in my email I wrote, subconsciously I wrote, you know, hi, such and such, a polite follow-up. And they responded and they said, well, you're always polite, right? <laughs> so, and I, I, I've, only known, I've only known this particular prospect for, you know, the last four to six weeks. So I think it's how you present yourself as well. And I think even coming back to how we presented ourselves during COVID, you just need to lighten up sometimes as well. So doing, undertaking business development remotely is bloody hard. So there's even more investment that you need to make. And now as people are used to working remotely, some people might not even want to see you, yeah, even though you might want to see them. But to be honest, this particular prospect is not even in Sydney. So that's helped me generate business, which is not in my backyard either. So I think it's looking at it from a, you know, what opportunities does business development present, how do I use and utilize the resources of the organization, use and utilize a BD function within the organization. Findex has a family office model, which looks at, you know, providing multiple services to one key relationship. So if I'm running that key relationship, how do I get others involved in that client such that 
they might get me involved in their clients. Um, but I think from a way of working now, there's no magic potion. I think it's a matter of just being authentic and not being not pretending to be something that you're not because if you pretend too much, it's really hard to to keep it up. So, and ultimately, if you have to pretend to be somebody to win some work, if you and then you win it and you have to continue to pretend to be like that to do it, it's too hard. Yeah. So you have to just be true to yourself and say, okay, well, I not not that everything's a joke or everything, you know, everything's a kind of a have a good time, but in the end, you need to be measured in how you present yourself in different situations. But ultimately, if you're authentic and you put out a, a perception of yourself, then no matter who's talking about you, it's consistent as opposed to, well, I don't actually know Jim to be like that. I, I know him to be like this. That's actually quite perplexing. Whereas I think it's fair to say that no matter who you talk to, you'll generally get the same feedback and opinion about the type of person that I am, not only from a personal relationships perspective, but also for, for a lot of my clients as well. Now, the, the, the term business development Crikey. can scare the shit out of people, <laughs> right? Particularly as, you know, I, I talk to people about that and, and, and invariably, you know, they may be a, a technician who yes. is introverted and their definition of business development is picking up the phone and cold calling someone yeah. and that scares them. Yeah. What is your definition of business development and all the facets that it could be? Because I think hearing that from someone like you would put people at ease that it's not just about picking up the phone and saying, Hey, I'm Steve and I do tax and yeah. can I do your tax returns? Yeah. Like what, what are the different areas of business development that you've had success with that you've seen the people that work for you have success with? Yeah, look, I think it's, I think it's, it's all about relationships yeah. in the end. And even though, you know, you might have some luck where a cold call or a cold, uh, introduction on LinkedIn, I get them all the time, works. So it's worked for me, yeah. but it's not going to work all the time. And in the end, it's what you make of it. So I think for me, it's all about slowly and steadily building relationships that you feel like will, will add value to your underlying business and the growth of that business. Now, how you go about that is up to you. So do you segment areas of work that you're involved in. So if you're doing a lot of, let's say, cross-border work, do you need to know which lawyers are doing cross-border work or who's involved in bringing over uh, migrant workers to Australia? So is it is it an immigration type business? So who who's involved in that market segment that can help you and assist you? Because ultimately, a, a piece of work's going to come in somewhere. Yeah. So you might get it first and you bring in Steve Cole. Or Steve Colt might get it and he might say, well, actually, this is one for Jim. And then you share those around. So it's all about building out relationships that you feel like you can add value to, but ultimately you're working collaboratively such that if it if an opportunity comes in, then they'll identify it as something that suits Jim. But o over time, it's just a matter of how well you how well you stratify personal and business relationships and how often you cleanse those as well. Because you'll find that, and a lot of new partners will tend to waste time with relationships that are just never going to deliver them business. Yes. But they might be safe. Yes. So I'll go and meet with Steve. He's a good guy. We'll always have a laugh. 
I've known him for a long time, but deep down I know that he's never going to give me anything. Yeah. So it's a matter of, and there's nothing wrong with spending that time, but if you're going to spend it, you need to spend other time with others that are actually going to refer your work. So it's not always going to be people that you love and like. They might be transactional. Others might you might form a bond with over a longer period of time. But as long as somebody can see how their work fits with yours, the better it will be. And then obviously from a personal relationship perspective, how good is your personal network? How good is your your university alumni? How good is your high school alumni? How good is your primary school alumni? So for me, I mean, I've had interactions with colleagues that I've worked with and then have become referrers that I went to kindergarten with. So I think longer term, and look, you'll never maintain best case friendships all the time. Things are going to happen. But ones where you do, and, and if you're fortunate enough to have those, explore them. Where are people? What are they doing now? How can they potentially be a referrer? How can they potentially help me secure something? So I think it's definitely a a relationship type matrix. How does that overlay with what you're trying to sell? And you need to be solutions focused, not, you know, I can push out a tax return and, you know, I can do that for three 300 bucks. No one really cares about that. Ultimately, it's, um, it's how you approach that work and how... Now, how meaningful it is to the person that's buying it in the end, because ultimately we're not providing, you know, we're not doing anything that's weight that that's that's that exciting, right? Yeah. <laughs> so in the end, we're not saving somebody's life. We're not creating something that's, you know, new to world. A lot of our clients do. So how do you share those stories? Like for me, seeing a client um, develop something and bring it to market and it's life changing or whatever. It's amazing because I can say I've been part of that journey. Um, and then how does that relationship help me with other relationships? Cause I can storytell around that. Uh, I had a client yesterday who's founded a business that's been going for, you know, 35 plus years. He's mid seventies and I respect him so much. And he calls me, sir. Yeah. Right. I said, well, don't call me. So I should be calling you, sir. <laughs> Right? So, and that's quite a nice thing, right? And you kind of reflect on it and you think, I haven't, that hasn't been my intention, but you've demonstrated it through relationships, through just, just general caring. I think if you care, you'll get something back. And that comes back to the authenticity side of things. It has well. to be. Don't, if, you, if you're fake, you might get two or three things. They might get you through the short term. And I know that some... You know, some structures, they're hard and you have to sometimes just roll your sleeves up and get get a bit dirty sometimes. But if you have to do that all the time, like where's the sustainable business in that, particularly as somebody who sees themselves as being in that role for quite a while, you need to sustain yourself. You can't be good one year and terrible the next and then okay the, the year after because guess what? The time that you're not good or you're oh, pissing everyone off, yeah. you're gone. Yeah. So you might fall back a little bit financially in a particular year because something just didn't go your way. But what you want at those times is for everybody to look at you and say, no, it's okay. Just come here and let's make it better next year. But if you're a you know, partner, if you're a dickhead, 
then you're going to get thrown out the first chance people get because all you've really demonstrated is, well, you're good one day and you're going to show everybody how good you are and you're going to tell everybody how amazing you are. And then when it's not good, what are you going to do? Hide in the corner. So I think it's managing relationships, but also managing managing oneself as well. Like you, you have to be conscious of how you're portrayed day to day and and the underlying perception of you within a, a, a larger business. I mean, that perception will either reward you or kill you in the end. And I, th- I think the, you know, your point, going back to your point on on your personal network is so important because I think it's it's obvious, but people don't tap into it. No. And and so if you if you look back on your your the people that you went to uni with, um, who did an accounting degree or yep. law degree, you know, they're, they're accountants. Yes. They're potentially lawyers. Yes. And as they become more senior, they're searching out a Same. network yep. and you could really help each other out. That's and right. I've seen so many people as intermediate accountants years ago, became managers, became senior and then partners. Those lawyer referrers or advisory referrers are, it's come to fruit, you That's know right. that that, that that revenue and that um, business is is is, is come is, is come Absolutely. around, and, and, so and people have created their own businesses yeah. as well, right? So, in the end, everyone, if everybody kind of helps and supports each other, they, I mean, nobody's been successful in. I mean, even somebody who sticks to themselves, they still need client relationships, so they're not just working themselves on their own thing. They need to interact with people, so um, that kind of relationship matrix and looking at uh, the stages of what those relationships are at. Some of them will be casual. Some of them will just be about business. Some of them will blend and some will come and go. So in a perfect world, you'll maintain the best relationships for a very long time and they'll always be there, but people will come and go. People's life, people's lives change, priorities change. And you might turn around and think, okay, why have they gone and done that? Or they used to be a really good referrer, or they were, um, you know, they were running a very successful business, and now they're doing this. That's for them to decide, yeah. and then you just have to roll with it, right? So ultimately, if you're comfortable in your own skin, and you know that you're doing the best that you can, I mean, obviously everybody thought, you know, COVID hits, we're all at home, we're all screwed, <laughs> screwed, um, batter it down, um, sandwiches for dinner, that's it right? Just finish everything. Like the first three or four months, yes, they were challenging because of the unknown. Yeah. But after that, it was actually busier for a lot of advisors. Well, that's it. How did you cope with that? It was, it was, the first part was challenging because it was an adjustment. But after that, we all got used to the track pants and the, you know, and the, um, the cat man do tops and no one really cared. Uh, And maybe, you know, shaving twice a week and having the dog walk past because, Everyone was doing that. Um, and in the end, people were seeking collaboration. They were seeking connection. So people would contact you and just want to talk. And if you were willing to listen, it was fine. And everyone was stuck at home anyway. So they were seeking connection. And I actually developed and redeveloped and reignited relationships that I hadn't necessarily thought about from days gone by during COVID. Yeah. Because- People had nothing else to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah, crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, so, they more, and they were willing to have that conversation. And they were, because they yeah. needed something from you. Yeah. You needed something from them. How do we help each other? Okay, it's too hard to go to somebody that I don't know now because having a establishing a new relationship cold virtually 
is hard. Yeah. Unless you're introduced or there's a there's a real reason for it. If you knew somebody, even if you had only seen them 10 years ago, actually then seeing them was like, this is fantastic. Lovely to see you. What, what are you up to? You know? And if you were happy to spend the time, I think everybody was just happy to to have a discussion at that time. I mean, you and I were doing it during that time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, you'd have these you know, nine o'clock or nine thirty teams calls and you'd have, you know, you'd have a, a glass of wine or whatever and people just wanted to talk. Um, but I think it it really boiled back down to how how much you valued that time. And if you valued that time and you're able to reestablish some of those connections and relationships, um, undertaking business development even in a virtual sense is not impossible. It's a bit trickier, requires a slightly different strategy. But what it's done for me is it's it's really opened up the landscape because my opportunities don't have to be in Sydney anymore. Yeah. They can be anywhere. So I've had a number of introductions to clients in in Queensland, in Victoria, overseas, and it's been it's actually been quite a pleasant experience for me. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to start to wrap up and I've got two questions for you. What is the best piece of advice you can give to an aspiring partner? The best piece of advice is that it does require a lot of patience and there won't be there won't be any short-term lottery wins. If there are, fantastic, but it requires patience and a very deep set respect for relationships new and old. Yeah. And also coming back to um, the genuineness of oneself and just being authentic. And so what would be the best piece of advice you'd give to a brand new partner? Brand new partner, you know, whether or not it's in an existing firm where they have existing relationships or a new firm, I think it's it's acknowledging the role that you're in, valuing that for what it is, not expecting anything to come to you for free, but equally, um, you know, being willing to be a bit be a bit reflective from time to time and be willing to take some early criticism as well and just try and pinpoint one or two people inside the organization that can really help you and then maybe one or two people outside because the outside view is always important internally sometimes clouded but internally find even just one potentially two is better where you can see how they can contribute to at least the first two to three years of your journey very very important help me um, even though some of those persons are no longer at Findex, I still valued my time with them. Great advice. Look, Jim, thank you. Um, you're obviously someone I've known for a long time. We've got a, a, a good relationship. You're someone that I think when you look back over the years has given people really good opportunities. So the amount of people that I know that have been working with you that have become a partner under your leadership and I think understanding your career journey that makes total sense you know if you look back at Rothsay and Grant Thornton you've obviously had people that gave you opportunities yes, correct. and I think that that resonates in how you lead now and I think that that will hopefully the people that listen to this will inspire be inspired by so thank you for your time You're i welcome. really appreciate it thank you very much steve and thank you for your time and good luck on the weekend <laughs> <laughs> absolutely we're gonna need it i think <laughs>
That's great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Path to Partnership podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. Follow the show for future episodes and leaving a review helps others find the podcast. Visit signatureconsulting.com.au to find out more about us. 